down from his glory, directs us to a biblical passage on the person of Christ. You find it in the book of Philippians, Philippians chapter 2. We read the revelation of God's word beginning with verse 5. Let this attitude be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death of a cross. There is a key biblical word that is the topic or subject of this scriptural unit or paragraph. What is this biblical key word? It is a stranger to our vocabularies. We never think about it. We never hear it preached. Seemingly, we do not understand today how it's a premier word in this biblical text. So let me say that Jesus said, this word, this key biblical word, is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Though neglected by us, it was not by the blessed Savior. It is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. How would you and I describe in one or two words, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? But Jesus uses this word, this key biblical word, the subject of down from his glory, is the eight-letter word, humility. Humility is the word that Christ lifts up from the bottom to the top from his culture. For in the days of the Roman culture of Jesus and St. Paul, humility was frowned upon. It was a word used to describe a slave or somebody unimportant, without position, without power, somebody who was lowly, if you please. And so the Romans used it only in a slavish manner. That's why greatness in the days of the Savior was by military might and conquering. Greatness was in the horse and the sword, conquering and going forth under to conquer. That's why we read back in history in the Greco-Roman Empire that Alexander of Macedon conquered the known world in his day. They call him Alexander the Great. The whole label put upon his name was the Great because he had gone forth to conquer. But we know that many people in other nations lost their lives by the horse and the sword and the chariots of Alexander the Great. Jesus is not using the word in that manner. Jesus said, I am meek and lowly at heart. We need to stop and pause for a moment. The Savior said, in his human nature, he is meek and lowly in heart. In his divine nature, he's always perfect. He don't need to be made meek or humble himself. But in his human nature, Jesus said, Come unto me, all ye who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. 
For my yoke is easy, my burden is light, for I am meek and lowly at heart. Thank you, God, for this kind of a blessed Redeemer. Jesus came from the top world of heavenly light above. He came from the throne of majesty. He came as the king of eternity. He came as the ancient of days with angels worshiping him in the world of ultimate reality, which has no darkness and no sin. It was a long way down from heaven to earth. It was a long way down from the top of glory to the bottom of shame and the public execution at the cross. Jesus paid it all. So when we deal with down from his glory, Jesus went down in humility. Humility literally means low or lowliness. And again I repeat, the Savior said, I am meek and lowly at heart. We thank God that he came down into this world of sinful darkness. He joined himself to Adam's race. He made himself nothing. Verse 7, Philippians 2 again reads, Himself he made nothing. Only he could make himself nothing, nothing among men in this world. How did this happen? He made himself nothing. He turned loose of his privileges as God. He turned loose of his advantages, never using them for himself, but only for others in his deep humility in coming down. How did he make himself nothing? How would we do that? And the verse 7 gives us in the next two phrases, he made himself nothing, and it tells how. By taking the form of a servant, he made himself nothing, and by being made in the likeness of men. That's verse 7 of Philippians 2. Being made in the likeness of men. Jesus humbled himself in the miracle of the incarnation. We read in scripture that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word becoming flesh is the eternal logos. Logos in Greek meaning word. Jesus came into this world and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And some of us beheld his glory. The glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. If he was just full of truth, we'd all perish in our sin and spiritual guilt. But he's full of grace and he's able to cleanse and forgive and take away the power and the penalty of sin. So here we have coming down from his glory, number one in the miracle of the Incarnation. Jesus did not choose uh, in the Incarnation to take a high position. He did not choose himself to come with chariots and horses and angels as the King Messiah expected. He didn't do that. He came meek and lowly as a Galilean. The Bible says in prophecy, Isaiah 53, 
he was despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. We did not know who he was. We esteemed him not. And high on Golgotha he said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. They did not understand, they esteemed him not, that he was the one that angels bowed before, that the worshipped in the world of light. Now he was in a world of spiritual darkness by the incarnation, not in him, but in the world in which he lived. He came to join Adam's ruined race. Adam sinned in Eden's garden. Adam rebelled against his maker, and it brought down the whole human race. For in Adam all die, so in Christ can all be made alive. That's scripture, that's truth, eternal. So Jesus looked upon the need of humanity. Would he come? Would he come so low? Would he come into the planet he had created? Would he be able to endure the sufferings of Calvary when God would take out the penalty of sin in his righteous judgment upon his own son? Our penalty, your penalty. Look at the flow of thought that comes into verse number 5, Philippians 2, 5. Let this attitude be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus. Look above to the flow of thought in verse 4. Each of you should look not only to his own interests, but to the interests of others. That's part of humility, looking to the interests of others, not putting yourself first, not me, myself, and I. It is selfless humility. This is what Jesus demonstrated. This is why Jesus came. Would he pay the price? Would he, as he thought about you, and as he thought about us, as he thought about everyone that ever lived in that dark planet Earth, and the disaster they would face at the end of the road, when they would go to hell, under the judgment of God for the guilt and the transgression of their own sins? Would Jesus come? Would Jesus come? He was thinking not of himself, not of himself, but he was thinking of you and me. That's true. Our sins were there, nailed to the cross. There was never a second that Jesus never thought of you. Hear this again. There was never a second that Jesus did not think of you. He has all things before him. Nothing surprises him. He's all-knowing. There is no movement of time and space with Jesus as God, a very God. He thought of you and thought of me. He never put the unsaved out of his thought. He was always thinking of others, not himself. He put them above himself. We need to take off our shoes sometime when we think that, when I think that. Jesus, you thought of me. You thought of me, can I say respectfully, more than you thought of your own interests. 
you could have not endured the bruises and crushing of the Roman soldiers. You could have not endured the agony of Calvary if you had said no. If you were thinking about your own advantages and not coming under the wrath, the righteous wrath of God the Father, the judge of the universe. But you never thought of that. How remarkable it was in the message I heard one night when Charles Stanley says, there's never a moment that Jesus does not think about you. I knew that I knew that he was speaking divine truth. Jesus knows every name. He names every star in our whirling galaxy. And there are hundreds of billions of stars in the Milky Way galaxy. He calls them all by name. Why wouldn't he call you by name? There's not a bird that dies, particularly the ones Jesus spoke about, that he does not know. This is still God's earth. Human dignity is because we were born in the image and likeness of God. Though it was corrupted, yet God designed man in his image before he created him in Eden's garden. So Jesus, thinking not of himself, never used his divine nature to profit his own advantage, never used it except for the help of others. There's over 30 miracles recorded from Jesus Christ. Miracles are superhuman. They're beyond what man can do with his own reach and power and wisdom and strength. He made Peter walk on water. That was a miracle. That was for Peter's sake. So Jesus was humble. He thought of others first. Secondly, besides the incarnation, we can look at another way in which Jesus humbled himself coming down from the throne of glory. He humbled himself by the terrible sufferings he endured before even the cross. The sufferings of Christ testify to his great humility because he could have stopped them at any time. All things were still under his control. He never lost control of it in Gethsemane or any place else. But look for a moment in Gethsemane. Jesus has just finished the Passover, the Paschal meal, with his disciples. He has instituted what we call and know and in reality as the Lord's Supper, and rightfully so. And then he goes out to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray. Here he is, prostrate on his face, crying out to God. Never a prayer reached the depth of that which Jesus Christ suffered under the moonlit skies of Gethsemane. That was a night of sorrow, a night of agony, of soul agony, a night of deep pain. He suffered for you and he suffered for me, even the temptation to turn back, but he would not. He still saw the need. He still understood the transgression of this whole planet. He understood what he would do at that hour, but he fell on his knees and said, Father, 
If it be thy will, take away this cup from me. This was not the cup of death. This was the cup of suffering under the guilt and penalty, under the wrath of God. This was the guilt that he was going to bear at Calvary. He was now, who knew no sin, going to become sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. What a miracle for us, but what a tragedy, so to speak, to fall into the hands of sinners. That's only humanly speaking, but Jesus prayed, and then they came, the soldiers came, the Roman cohort came, Many soldiers came and they tied the hands of Jesus and led him away to a criminal's trial before the high priest Caiaphas. There was Jesus, bound so to speak. But did you know this, as I read again about Gethsemane, that when the soldiers came, led by the betrayer Judas, they said, Are you Jesus? He said, Yes, I am Jesus. And the scripture says in the Gospel of John that as Jesus said these words, the whole cohort of Roman soldiers, maybe 50 to 60, fell backwards to the ground. That was the use of his own supernatural power, his divine omnipotence. He did that not for himself, but he did that for his disciples so that they would be protected, so that they would not flee, so that they would see he still had power over men that he had created in the universe. But they fell to the ground, and then they got up again and said, Are you Jesus? He said, I said that I am he. So they bound the hands of Jesus and led him away that night to the high priest for a trial. There the high priest mocked Jesus. There the high priest brought charges and they could not get any of their witnesses to agree. Finally the high priest said, Tell me, are you Jesus, the Son of the living God? And before the high priest Caiaphas, Jesus said, I am, and you shall see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of glory, standing at the right hand of God. Then Caiaphas said he is blasphemed. The high priest then tore his garments and said he's worthy of death. There was the trial. There was the mockery of who he was. But there was Jesus saying in the behalf of Caiaphas, someday You will see me coming in the clouds of glory. Thank God Jesus is still in control. He's still God of very God. But he allows his human nature to go through the torrent of persecution and the false trial that he had. Then they led him away to Pilate because Rome had taken away the death penalty from Israel. Rome was in charge, and to prescribe death or execution for a criminal, they would have to go before the Roman governor, Pilate. Pilate had been appointed by Caesar himself. He spoke for Rome. And there was Pilate and the soldiers. 
And Pilate heard the charges of the priests made against Jesus Christ. He knew, Pilate knew, that for envy they had delivered him. He knew Jesus had never caused any problem. He knew he was not a lawbreaker. He knew he was innocent of the charges. Pilate knew all of this, and yet his soldiers took him after they said the crowd, crucify him. The soldiers took Jesus and mocked him. The Bible says in the Gospel of Luke, they even spit upon him. Did they know that he'd given them the breath to breathe? He gives to all life and breath and all things. Woe to that arm that swung through the air of the Roman soldier and slapped Jesus in the face and mocked him. They put a crown of thorns upon him and bowed the knee, beating him on the head. They cried out in mockery, Tell us who, prophet, tell us who smote you. Jesus was mocked, yet he could have avoided it all. He could have, because on the way to the cross of Calvary, never forget the 17th chapter of Matthew and the Transfiguration. Before Jesus ever came, before this suffering and trial, he was not happy with their behavior. He could have put them out, but it was for our sins that he was selfless in humility. And yet, when he was coming back to Jerusalem for the last time, the last Passion Week, the last Passover, so to speak, he was near Caesarea Philippi in Matthew 17. And stopping at Mount Hermon, he needed something, for he just told the disciples, The Son of Man shall be crucified in Jerusalem, but shall rise the third day from the dead. The disciples were confused. They'd never heard of their King Jesus going to be crucified. Him? Put to death God of very God? Why would he die? We couldn't understand. The Old Testament said he's a king. In many prophecies, a king messiah coming to rule, not to be ruled and to suffer death. And Jesus has told them to, to let them know, but they were confused. And Jesus said, I tell you the truth. Some are standing here that shall not taste of death till they see the Son of Man coming in his glory. He was going to do something for the disciples. Then the Bible says in Matthew 17, verse 1, Then six days later Jesus took them up into a high mountain and was transfigured. That verse goes with the rest of the paragraph above it in chapter 16. That some be standing here that shall not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in his glory. They came in his glory, and Peter, James, and John, standing there, hearing Jesus tell of his coming death in Jerusalem, was standing there, and Jesus, for their sake, was transformed back into the divine light that he had inside of him. His divine glory that he had and always had in his divine nature began to shine through. His clothes became white, dazzling white. 
his face become radiant as the sun. And they saw the glory of Christ that he brought into this world in its divine nature. It was always there. There's no subtraction to an eternal God that never changes, but he let it shine through. There was no light shining on Jesus on the Mount Hermon. There was no light shining on him. The blinding white light there around his face was the light coming from inside of him. His radiant glory as King of kings and Lord of lords. He is the light of the world to come. He is the light of heaven, for no sun shall shine in it, but the Lamb shall be the light thereof. And so they saw that tremendous glory of God coming on Mount Hermon, and they did not taste death. Jesus did that to show them that he was still God of every God, to let them remind themselves of the transfiguration before he got to the city of death for him, which was Jerusalem. So Jesus in his sufferings could have stopped these soldiers. Jesus in his sufferings could have used his divine power, the majesty of his own divine omnipotence, but he did not. He chose to go the lonely way of the cross for our sins and our sorrow. And then from top to bottom, down from his glory, he went to the supreme depth in showing his humility in having it demonstrated in that he went to the death of the cross. And there was Pilate saying, I wash my hands of this man. I, I know he's innocent. You take him. And they shouted all the more. That rabble crowd stood up by the scribes and Pharisees to shout for Barnabas, a murderer, to be released. And this blessed Jesus to die the shameful death. And when Jesus went to the hill of Golgotha, he went there for you, and he went there for me. He went there in great humility, because the Bible says he redeemed us from the curse of the law. It was not the torment of his broken body lashed 39 times till his back was open and bruised and bleeding and broken, so to speak, not a bone was broken, but his back flesh was broken and torn open. There he was as they nailed his hands and his feet. They did not know who he was. He was despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted of grief. For your sins and my sins, he walked the road to Calvary's cross, and for you and me, he endured the suffering of the wrath of God. That was the suffering for three hours from 12 noon when the sun went darkened. And Luke says the sun quit shining that day for three hours till three o'clock. Jesus was going through the valley of the shadow of death. Something happened in the divine adorable trinity that he shouted to the Father, 
My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Nobody will ever plumb in the ages of eternity the depth of that cry of despair, of abandonment for the guilt and the punishment of our sins were there. He endured the wrath of God. He who was at the Father's side always, the only begotten God, Jesus Christ, was there all the time in this communion with his Father. And yet he said, Father, why have you forsaken me? He paid the price. He who knew no sin had become sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And he shouted, it is finished. Not I'm defeated, but my ministry as a servant, my ministry in human flesh and weakness, my ministry in this world right now is over. It is finished. The Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. His mission was accomplished. His mission of the wrath, not the pain of the Calvary that broke him so badly. It was the spiritual pain that he bore for you, that as you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, if Jesus does not return, you'll never know that pain. For the sting of death is sin, the Bible says. The sting is there in the unbeliever. The sting is there in the rejecter of Christ. The sting is there for the evolutionist that never repents. The sting of death is there. And Jesus took that death. And by death he defeated him. He defeated him that had the power of death. The devil had brought it into the planet through Adam. But Jesus made death die because he said, I'm coming back again. He never announced his death unless he announced also his crucifixion would be followed by three days and he would rise again. The sun would shine again across the planet Earth in a new way. He would rise again. He would leave death behind so that he came back in a immortal body. And he's able to take our lowly bodies someday and transform them into an image like to his own glorious body. Immortality, never able to die in the human body again. There was Jesus, the conquering one, and he did it out of great humility. He did it out of taking the shame and the guilt and the blame. What about you? The Bible says, let this attitude be in you, which is in Christ Jesus. What about us being number one? We can count others better than ourselves, the Bible says, by putting ourselves at the bottom of the file, of the pile as well, and putting others first. Can we imitate? Can we be the ones that Christ would say, they bear my image I'm molding them that they might be humble as I am humble. Not proud, not having their own way, but being humble like our Savior. May God mix with faith 
the blessing of his word. May we be able to draw closer to you, Lord Jesus, by realizing a little the depth of your great humility when you came down from the world of light and you said to the Father before you went to Calvary, Restore to me the glory I had with you before the world was. 17.5 of John, Restore to me the glory I had with you before the world was. It's restored now, and he's coming back as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Our global ministry is blessed by your response. You can expand your ministry by downloading this anointed message or others from gettinggodstruth.com. Share us on your timeline on Facebook or subscribe to our podcast 